thanks for tuning in to the Huntback Country podcast. This is episode number 270, and our guest is Dwayne Magnuson. Dwayne is the owner-operator of Magnuson Alaskan Outfitters. He's not only an outfitter, he's also a guide and a very experienced backcountry pilot in Alaska. Steve and Tyler went up and hunted with Dwayne this past fall, which you might have heard some about on previous episodes. We wanted to get Dwayne on the podcast to learn from his experience and perspective as an outfitter, guide, and pilot in Alaska. Whether or not you'll be hunting Alaska in the future, and whether or not that future trip may be guided or a DIY trip in Alaska, there's no doubt something you can take from this episode. We cover a wide variety of topics as it comes to hunting Alaska in general, the experience of being a pilot, the experience of being a guide, and much, much more. So thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. If you can share this show with a friend, that'd help us tremendously. Another thing is reviews. Leaving us reviews helps a lot. We appreciate you guys taking the time to do that. If you want to contact us directly, just send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. But for now, let's dive into this discussion with Dwayne. Dwayne, it's good to have you on here, man. I'm excited to chat. And uh, Steve, you, uh, this is a, a connection you have from your sheep hunt this past fall, right? Yeah, yeah. So got the honor of, of hanging out and hunting with Dwayne uh, went with Tyler and I sheep hunt. He was our guide and he's the guide outfitter. And uh, yeah, we just had an absolute blast. It was, uh, you know, it was my first guided hunt. Um, and I just didn't know what to expect, right? You just don't know who the guide's going to be and, and their personalities. And hunting with Dwayne was like, uh, I mean, just hunting with like somebody, a really good friend of yours that you've known forever. So it was fun to, to really have that experience. Yeah. And Dwayne was, um, uh, just a freaking mountain goat had no, <laughs> like had no stop in him. There was never not like, let's go look over that peak. So it's always, always fun to hunt with somebody that has that mentality and, and super, super positive, right? Like always like, Oh, there's going to be a Ram over the next hill, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I had a blast hunting with you, Dwayne. Yeah. Likewise. Well, that's cool. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that hunt and kind of some more guiding outfitting stuff. Um, just to kick things off, Dwayne, go ahead and give you know anything you want to share for context for listeners to get you to get to know you. Um, yeah, just kind of a brief introduction. Uh, my name is Dwayne Magnuson. I own Magnuson Alaskan Outfitters. Um, my wife and I and my I have two little kids, a seven year old boy and a two and a half year old little girl. Uh, we own and operate, and uh, my brother is a big help uh, as well. He's been giving me all sorts of business advice and running a lot of social media stuff kind of for me because that's not really my forte. But, um, yeah, I kind of got into the guiding back in 2003. I've always been into hunting and fishing and being outside. Um, and like I said, I grew up in western Washington. That's where all my family's from. And, uh, but Alaska was kind of always, my dad was a commercial fisherman. And so he would bring me back postcards and, you know, tell me stories about Alaska. And so I always wanted to uh, go up there. And in 2003, I finally made that move after, um, getting, uh, or graduating university, the degree, and I got all my, uh, pilot ratings and went up there to look for a job flying airplanes and, um, I found both flying airplanes and became a guide. 
Yeah. <laughs> so you fly commercial for Alaska Airlines? I do, yeah. Yeah. What, um, man, there's so many questions already. No, let's just start here because I'm, I'm super curious about this. Uh, becoming an outfitter. So it's one thing to be, you know, a guide who's working for an outfitter. You, as you said, are owner operator, your guide and outfitter. Give us the rundown on what does it take to become an outfitter from, you know, my very brief and ignorant understanding. Um, you know, there's limitations there in terms of specific allotments for specific areas in Alaska and how many outfitters can operate and all that. So for you, what did it take, uh, even logistically to become an outfitter? Um, for me, <clears throat> it, I mean, there's certain requirements, obviously, like you're asking that, uh, you have to, um, fulfill to, to be able to get the license first, you know, you have to, the first couple of years I started packing for uh, an outfitter and, um, it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed the hunts and the, this, the whole thing, you know, the flying, the small planes out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, it's just complete. It's always an adventure. You're always, uh, checking out new, uh, you know, like Steve said, you know, you always get to go look over the next hill. There's no road on the other side. And, uh, so I guess for me, I was working for the guide and, uh, after a couple of years, he, said to me, you know, you ought to look into getting your assistant guide license. And, uh, I was working for him and doing some flying for a small airline up there, just a little air taxi. And, uh, so I was using my off time to do that. It was, um, I, I would do like half, half my time flying and then half my time I'd go guide and during the season. And, uh, <clears throat> so I went and you have to get a couple years, I believe, um, um, hunting in Alaska, and then you have to have been on or taken a certain amount of big game animals um, to qualify. And then that an outfitter has to give you a recommendation. So I got that. And then uh, I forget how long it was until I looked into getting my registered guide license, because you have to have five years under, an, you know, as an assistant guide, guiding certain amount of clients um then you have to get recommendations from them a certain amount of animals um and then you have to have a, a registered guides recommendation as well to get your registered guides license um, and one of the hard things with in alaska is um you know when you're doing that you're gaining time in a specific unit in area and when you go to get your registered guide license that's the only real area you can test out in. So um, it kind of becomes a, a conflict with a lot of outfitters and their younger guides getting the registered guide license, because if the, the younger guys want to, um, you know, start up their own little uh, business, they're right on top of, or in an area where they have been working for somebody, you know, it's, it's typically their friend. And uh, mm -hmm. So, but I had a, you know, a bunch of time in a number of different units and I worked for, I went and worked for a number of different outfitters to get different um, area and, 
you know, different experience. Everybody's got, you know, some incredible stories and incredible uh, attributes that you can learn from. So it was really nice to kind of go to different outfits. And then you also, you see things you like and don't like if you want to do your own. And to be honest, I didn't really have in mind starting my own outfit. Um, I was kind of going down the line of being an airline pilot and uh, I really like flying, um, but I also really like flying small planes and being outside adventuring, you know, kind of one of my buddies kind of mentioned to me, he's like, you ought to just, you know, work on doing some of your own. You don't have to take a whole bunch of guys Just start kind of doing some of your own outfitting. And it's kind of how it started. So to get your outfitter's license, you have to spend so many days in a, in a certain zone unit um, prior. So that'd be assistant guiding or packing or. Yeah. Um, you have yeah, to, interesting. so for the registered guide test, it's like a whole bunch of different, um, it, it's uh, like three or four different tests now. I, it was back in 2011. I believe some of it's changed now. I don't know all the specifics on it. And that was one of the reasons I ended up going and getting it because they had been making it harder and harder to get the uh, registered guide license. And um, so I figured I might as well go take it. And um, if I use it, I use it. If not, then, you know, not a big deal, but. It's a, uh, it's interesting to me. It seems like kind of a unique thing that you are, you're the, you're the outfitter, guide, pilot. Like it's kind of like you're a one-stop shop, as you said. Maybe a smaller operation. You kind of control how many hunts, how many clients you have in a season. But just, uh, I imagine there's a not only from you know just thinking of a hunter's perspective, but even from your perspective, it's got to be I'm sure very challenging, but also kind of provide a unique opportunity experience for you to be all of the above, right? Like you're the pilot, guide, operator. Um, it's gotta be a lot of work. <laughs> it is. And that's where like, um, my wife, uh, comes in, you know, with logistics stuff, especially when I'm in the field, just helping, you know, answer questions and telling people where, where they need to go. And, um, she's been great with that. Um, you know, I can't do it all, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it, um, yeah, it's, it's nice to have people around you that can, uh, you know, help you out and pick you up when you need it. Yeah. I remember, oh, I remember on the hunt doing, it was like, they quit like a teenage girl on his, on his inreach, just constantly texting and <laughs> coordinating, you know, cause we're out there hunting and having a good time. And he's got, you know, other hunters out there in the field and guides and talking with his wife and just planning and that, uh, probably that inreach is a pretty invaluable tool for you. That's probably the hardest part is all the logistics, you know, just yeah. staying on top of it. Um, you know, the, yeah, the logistics, I guess, would be the hardest part and keeping all the parts moving while you're still trying to, um, do the other stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. And just, I mean, I haven't done a guided hunt, but just from like even our caribou hunt, which we used to air taxi service, like from the hunter's perspective, communication is so helpful and just reassuring and, uh, you know, I know it's difficult, especially in your situation where you're trying to do it all, but just going, you know, to do what you can to not only manage logistics, but also kind of communicate changes and all that and staying in touch with hunters, you know, that goes such a long way and is so important. Yeah, it does. 
um, it, and, uh, you know, with, when I'm like selling a hunt and stuff, it, they want to see my face out there because it's, it's personal, you know? And, uh, so in that aspect, I like to have my, you know, my boots on the ground, but also, um, you know, I got to run the business too. So sometimes it gets a little challenging with trying to guide people fly and make sure everybody's taken care of. Sometimes I just gotta let some of my guys take care of the work and, uh, me take care of all them, you know? Mm, right. Yeah. So in terms of, uh, operationally, you mentioned different areas, uh, and I believe you, you hunt the Alaska range, especially for sheep, which is where, uh, you were with Steven Tyler, but what, what all is offered there in the Alaskan range? And then where else do you operate within Alaska for maybe other species? Uh, the Alaska range, uh, man, it has everything. It, it is, uh, depending on the time of year you're there, we're there in August. Uh, and in August, uh, they have sheep opens August 10th with caribou. Um, wolf is also open. Um, and they have some really good caribou. They're all in velvet during that time. And, uh, you know, they're just kind of, you don't get big herds of them. It's just kind of these stragglers, uh, moving, you know, lone bulls, or you get a couple bulls together moving through, just some of the high country, you'll see them up where the sheep are almost. Um, and back in some of these bowls where you're hiking back in to get the sheep, they're back in there on the, um, the snow fields and ice fields, just trying to stay cool. Um, moose opens September 1st and so does uh, grizzly bear. Oh, and I forgot black bears open during um, sheep as well. Yeah. And we were in there just like, it's like, uh, yeah, just Thanksgiving dinner in front of you as far as like every choice you could want to hunt, you know, if you, if you could have all those tags in your pocket or obviously the cool thing Alaska does there is if, if you have a tag that's costs more than the tag below it, you can apply that. So you could use a grizzly bear on a caribou or a, even a sheep, I believe Grizzly's the most expensive, right? Dwayne? Yeah. Yeah. So everything below that is, you know, fair game to pull the trigger on and you could put your tag on it. So long as you have a, a locking tag for it. Um, so it's pretty kind of fun to hunt that way. Um, and that I think Dwayne, you kind of told some stories where guys end up, you know, they've got a sheep tag, but then all of a sudden, you know, four days into the hunt, it gets pretty difficult and there's a nice big caribou bull standing there. And a lot of guys are pretty tempted to pull that trigger. Yeah, they are. <clears throat> are, are I'm curious on that. Are guys tempted because obviously the opportunities there, right? Like you see the bull and it's still a majestic, awesome animal. It would be so hard for me to give up on a sheep is a factor there the difficulty of the sheep hunting guys are like, I could just tag out on this nice bull and like save myself from work and misery. Is that part of it in some cases? Um, yeah, for sure. That's part of it. Uh, you know, especially if guys haven't been seeing anything, they, they are really, you know, your mind just starts to play tricks on you because they pay a lot of money to come and do this. And if you're not seeing animals, um, <laughs> guys tend to panic a little bit, you know? And, uh, so, you know, they have something that's pretty tempting walk in front of them. It's, it's hard. And, you know, they've been busting their butt too, to get to where they're at and, uh, sort of go home with nothing sometimes, you know, is I can see why they want to pull the trigger on something when it presents itself, you know, as, as hunters, we've got to be opportunistic as well. Yeah. I was going to ask you about this later, but you kind of just touched on it. 
in terms of kind of the mental struggle and especially when you have you know the investments of of time and energy and money into something like a sheep hunt but I'm just kind of curious like from a super high level your perspective as a guide and outfitter seeing a lot of different hunters do you feel that um hunters struggle because they didn't prepare physically didn't prepare mentally or didn't prepare logistically with things like gear or what have you and i'm sure that there's a combination of all the above but what do you see the most guys who maybe aren't fully equipped or ready physically mentally or logistically yeah i mean i see all of it but um you know, everybody has busy lives and the truth of it is when you get there, all you have now is just your drive and whatever you got on your back. So at that point, you got to forget about that stuff and don't worry about it. And just, you know, you go at your pace and don't give up, you know, that mental aspect there kicks in huge because, um, as Steve knows, you know, in Alaska, you're going to run into adversity and, um, the, you know, the one thing I see that really hinders people as soon as we run into a little speed bump, you know, something isn't going our way or something got forgot or, you know, the logistics out there is hard. And uh, when we run into that, guys tend to start to falter. And uh, that's kind of my job as the guide to keep their their attitude up, because as long as they keep that positive attitude and the, the can do and don't give up, they have a chance you know, and, um, sometimes that can be the hardest part is just not getting sucked into that negative attitude myself, you know, keeping that positive, even when it's it's pouring down rain, you haven't seen anything, you can't see the mountain, um, you know, things aren't looking good. Uh, you never know what's gonna, what's gonna present itself or what's gonna pop up. And we talk about it all the time, you know, training, like it's, it's, very concrete to train for physical fitness. It's very hard to train for mental toughness. Um, you really got to, you really just got to go put yourself through it. We've done podcasts on it with multiple guys of, you just got to go suffer in order to, to be able to, you know, when you're out there in that, in that moment, when it's raining and you're stuck in the tent for three days to, to be able to handle that mentally. Yeah. Yeah. The patience, um, the patience and the mental toughness. I grew up, as a wrestler all through college. And, um, I think that helped a lot, you know, it doesn't completely prepare you, but, um, with that mental toughness, um, in bad situations or uncomfortable, um, situations, you know? Yeah. You mentioned kind of keeping guys in it, keeping them motivated, keeping them positive, like on a practical level, what does that look like? (laughs) I mean, I just, I don't anticipate like you, you know, giving this giant, like, uh, Braveheart rallying motivational speech? Is it just kind of small ways, little encouragements, like on a practical level? How do you help guys who are struggling with that? Um, you know, taking the little breaks, getting them a hot meal, you know, when, when you can tell someone's starting to struggle or you're, you're pushing them, take a little break, make them a cup of coffee or, or tea, you know, set them down and uh, get them some food, let them rest for a few minutes. And then, uh, you know, tell them a story or just sit down and talk to them, see where their head is at, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, just keep them, keep them positive. That works on Steve. If he's crabby, just give him some coffee. <laughs> that works on me too. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, 
shift of gears, but I want to hear a bit, a bit more about flying. So I think you have an interesting experience being both a commercial pilot uh, as well as, you know, flying cubs and everything for, um, for this. What, what was kind of first for you? I mean, I, I, did you train on smaller planes and then work your way up to the commercial stuff? Did you spend more time, you know, more in bush planes and then transition to commercial? What was that like for you in your career? Um, well, when you first start training, most people are starting out in uh, a small little like four seat airplane or two seat airplane. Mm -hmm. um, that's the, kind of been the typical route. You know, you work on your private, then either your instrument or your commercial, and then kind of work on your multi-engine. And uh, then you're, you have to build time to get your ATP, which is your airline transport rating. And, uh, you know, then you can work for an airline but a lot of that you have to go do you know once you get your um private commercial and instrument rating a lot of guys will go get their instructor rating so they can start teaching and that builds the hours because it's all about getting hours um building those hours and logging them uh to be able to get the jobs on the commercial side yeah on the commercial side on the uh on the small, like the bush plane side, a lot, it's experience, you know, in those little cubs. And there's a lot of guys that, you know, that grew up their their families, they grew up around it and they're, you know, same, I guess, in the airline side. But um, for me, I didn't grow up around it. And uh, I had a friend's dad that kind of got me into it when I was in college. He, I never, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be an airline pilot either. I was, I thought I was going to be a commercial fisherman. And, uh, I still love commercial fishing, but, um, anyways, it, uh, yeah, the small plane stuff, you know, as you train for the airline, you kind of graduate up to bigger airplanes and, uh, you get away from the smaller airplanes. A lot of guys don't really, I mean, they remember how to fly the small airplanes, but they're not as comfortable jumping in a small airplane and going and doing something if they mm -hmm. haven't been flying it a bunch, it's just a different world. And yeah. so for me, I just kind of doing the guiding thing. I was in the back of a cub all the time and then, you know, wanted my own cub and eventually ended up buying my own cub and um, just getting out and practicing, you know, going out to some of the gravel bars and rivers that are close by with good gravel bars and practicing my short field landings and um, picking spots is probably the hardest part about it. Um, you know, flying over something you haven't, walked on or landed on before and um looking at it making sure it doesn't have any you know giant holes or bumps or rocks or logs or you know cut banks um some of that stuff can be real hard to see from the air and then uh you know keeping that spot in mind going around and coming back and lining up with it and um touching down where you want to touch down H having that understanding of how how the length you need and, uh, and it changes with the wind and the elevation and the temperature and your weight. So you kind of have to just have that kind of stuff in mind. Yeah. I remember, uh, it was, it was surprising to me how much even 50 pounds can affect, you know, affect the super cub getting off the ground and, and landing. Um, it seems like, yeah, every, when that, if someone's going on a guided hunt and, and you as the outfitter make a say like, Hey, your pack can't weigh more than 60 pounds. That's not just made up number. That's a, a real thing that, that they got to account for. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
especially for most, you know, I guess depending on where you're hunting, but a lot for the sheep because you're up in those hills and you can be up a couple, two, 3,000 feet. And, you know, if you're landing up on tops too, uh, it can really affect you. Do you have any kind of close calls, kind of wild stories from any experiences with the cub? Um, I mean, I've definitely had uh, moments where I'm not comfortable with my situation. Uh, <laughs> I wish I was on the ground. Uh, I think every pilot has that and that's yeah. kind of how you learn, but, um, you know, you learn to not put, not want to put yourself back in that situation. Um, uh, one of the nice parts about the cub is, you know, if you're going along and you don't like the weather, those big tires, you can, you can find a spot to land in a lot of places. There's some places you can't, you know, um, and, uh, you stick to area that you can, you know, you start running into trouble or you need fuel, put it down. And I always keep a little, basically like a camp in the back of my plane, just a lightweight little, little bit of mountain house or, you know, some freeze dried food, my sleeping bag, something to cover me. And, uh, those, those moments, those are mostly brought upon by conditions. Is that primarily like wind? Um, both, it can be both, you know, uh, wind and or the visibility coming down get stuck in that kind of stuff you know it's not it's not fun trying to make your way around and when it's soupy out you know it's always better to put it down and just wait wait it out this was probably nothing for like some of your experiences but speaking of visibility when uh when we were in kodiak steve we we took off from Kodiak Duane and we were flying around to Larson Bay and you know, the pilot, like when we took off, I mean, it was pretty crappy visibility. And he told us, he's like, well, normally we go up and over, you know, the Island essentially and, and through some mountain passes, but uh, he's like, we don't have any visibility. So we're just going to like hug the shoreline and literally fly around the Island. And that's pretty much what he was doing. He just, he didn't have visibility and it was just kind of hugging shore and staying low. And it was, it was, pretty intense for me at least being kind of like limited experience with that thing yeah you can't see crap i remember that's probably the scariest i've scariest i've been in a plane because i think mike was taking a photo and the, and the pilot was like don't take any photos like stop like just like he didn't want any distractions you know the the guy in the back seat kind of moving around uh yeah that was a fun fun experience <laughs> <laughs> so Dwayne, the kind of the you know the origins of the sheep hunts and getting connected with you and steve going on the hunt with tyler was tyler winning this hunt uh last year about this time last year at the hunt expo in salt lake um i think we kind of talked about that a little bit when it came up but from your perspective um how does that work for you is that just you know you're essentially donating that hunt uh to to be raffled off and kind of have the experience or what does that look like from your perspective as the outfitter? No, they, they buy the hunt off me, but it's okay. typically at a discounted rate. Um, they've been, you know, full curl. Those guys have been really good to me. I got in five or six years ago now. And, uh, you know, the first year, I think they talked to me about, um, or maybe I talked to one of them, I forget now, but they came back and talked to me and said, Hey, uh, you, you interested in working a deal with us on a, a sheep hunt? Cause we want to do a raffle. And, um, at that time it was kind of hard for me to give a, a deal because I'm, I'm like, 
trying to make it, you know, there's a lot of expense on owning all the stuff and trying to run it. And, but it, I mean, I, I gave them a deal and they, uh, been coming back ever since. And, um, they've been, they've been excellent. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy working with those guys and happy I met them and, uh, hopefully I can keep a, a good uh, relationship with those guys. Yeah. Well, one thing that's, uh, curious to me is, you know, a typical on a normal basis, you you're contacted by someone who's interested in hunt and, you know, they're vetting you out, but I'm sure in, in some ways you're getting a feel for that client as well, uh, which is totally different with these raffles because it's literally someone being drawn that you don't know and haven't talked to. And all of a sudden you're coordinating this hunt. Uh, and obviously Tyler was probably, probably not your average client. I'll put it that way. But what has it been like, uh, you know, dealing with just a kind of a wide variety, uh, I'm sure of clientels and capabilities and expectations and particularly on the raffle side, when it's someone all of a sudden you're booked up and you really haven't talked to this person or got a feel for them. That has to be uh, a pretty unique scenario. Yeah. I usually try and talk to everybody, um, you know, at least a couple, two or three times before they show up and get an idea whether I'm going to guide them or I'm going to put them with a guide um, and try and match them up with one of the guides that they can relate with, you know, um, for any of the hunts, I try and do that just because they're going to be spending so much time with this person. It's important to have that relationship, you know? Hmm. That's a great point. What do you, what goes into that? Is that just kind of on feel on you, just kind of getting to know the person, understanding the personality of your guides and just kind of trying to see if they're going to mesh well, or is that more, uh, I call it strategic on like capabilities, physical logistics areas. Um, cause that's, I think that's a very helpful point, even for guys who might be listening to this and, in looking at booking a hunt, whether it's sheep or anything else is just kind of, maybe that's something that they ask those questions on kind of getting a feel for making sure they're paired up with someone that's going to work well with them and for them. Yeah. Um, you know, most, most of the time guys are just honest, you know, they, they know they're going on a tough hunt and, um, you know, they know it's going to be tough and that they're optimistic, you know, and, um, I, I try and, you know, build a good relationship with them. So they trust me. So they'll tell me, you know, if they're having a problem or having, you know, uh, had a guy that had a knee surgery and like a couple months before it was just, a um, uh, meniscus. So fortunately he was still able to come, but, um, you know, all that stuff kind of plays in and, uh, just being honest with the, the guide outfitter or, um, you know, and me being honest with them, trying to, um, match them with the relationship. Uh, I, I just ask them, this is, I kind of try and give them a, a background of the guide and, um, I give the guide a background of them and, um, yeah. Then I try and it, it's hard. I, I don't get it right all the time, <laughs> uh, but you know, that's kind of part of it too. That's a good example of something I honestly never thought of. Like just again, going back to the the breadth of responsibilities and what all goes into um, 
a situation like yours, as we mentioned, where you're not just a guide, but you're a guide outfitter, you're managing logistics, you're managing communication, and you're managing even that placement for that whole customer experience. That's, yeah, you, you got a lot to juggle, man. Yeah, that one is probably the, you know, the experience is what, what I, I really try and, um, that's what I want guys to walk away with, the, a great experience, you know, because not everybody, to be honest, is going to get an animal. It just, they, sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes the weather, sometimes the animals aren't there. Sometimes they get hurt or, you know, they have a family emergency. I have to leave early. I've had that. Um, there's just all sorts of things, but the, you know, just the experience is, um, it's really important, I think, to try and give them the experience they deserve. Um, we talked a bit after, uh, Steven Teller sheep hunts about, you know, their story and the experience. And, you know, it sounds like, uh, their experience on the hunt was, not too unique for the Alaska range, but maybe touch on, you know, just kind of the year in general, um, in the Alaska range in terms of sheep and, you know, some of the factors that go into that. Cause it's, you know, it's like anything else. You can kind of have a good year and a bad year as a whole. And yes, you know, every year, some guys are going to have, um, success even in, in tough conditions, but kind of what are some of the variables and conditions and ebbs and flows of, sheep hunting and populations and things like that throughout the range? Um, you know, for the most part in the Alaska range, it's been one of the more stable places in Alaska. And, um, this last year they predict, or they are guessing they had a big spring die off because they never got to do their spring survey. Uh, the fishing game didn't, or fishing wildlife. No, fishing game. Um, they, due to weather, um, they n- never got to do the survey on the sheep. So they were, per- and they, they had a rough winter at the end there, uh, kind of the winter just drug on and they had a couple storms right at the end when it should have been getting nice and they're get, dropping lambs, uh, which, you know, some of the animals are just kind of hanging on maybe some of the bigger, older rams, uh, it didn't go, it probably didn't go so well for them. Um, so they, I had called and talked to them in the summertime after they were supposed to do the survey and they said they didn't get to do it and we're kind of predicting that. And, uh, so I did some of my, uh, scouting in July and I started noticing some of the spots that I was going over that typically hold bands of rams. I wasn't seeing the, the rams. Uh, I was seeing some in, in other areas. And, you know, sheep are funny. They, some years I won't see them in certain spots and then they just show up. Uh, I don't know where they go. And I don't, fishing game, I don't think really knows where they go. Uh, I've, I read a bunch of articles on it and they, they'll talk a lot about how their calculations are just a educated guess, really, because um, with the weather and how big Alaska is, it's really hard for them to get every nook and cranny. And when you're looking for a big ram, you've got to look in like every nook and cranny. They uh, they can hide in just a little rock pile. Um, I don't know how many times I've gone over an area, over an area, and and not seen anything. And then when you're not expecting it, and you're you know being loud or cooking by a fire, 
all of a sudden something just pops out. I don't know. It's, it's weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's summer scouting. You're just doing a lot of flying, kind of checking out things and looking at areas. Yeah. Typically, um, I, you know, I'm flying, trying to find, making sure some of the bands of rams are still in those uh, sets of hills. Cause they, you know, through the season, they, they're going to get moved and, you know, whether guys like it or not, there's going to be other outfitters and or hunters around. Um, so animals get pushed. And so uh, I try and just put guys in areas where they're going to have multiple opportunities uh, at shooting, you know, at seeing a ram. Uh, That's one thing we've, we've touched on. I can't remember if we talked about it from your sheep on Steve, but I know we've touched on it with uh, different Alaskan experiences is it's uh it's something to be prepared for guys who've never been. Uh, and it's what you said there of there is pressure in Alaska and you're, you know, there are potential, uh, you know, for other hunters and it's not necessarily gonna be crowded and have people on top of you. But I think everyone just assumes I'm going to Alaska, middle of nowhere. There's no chance I will see anyone or that hunting pressure will be a factor, but you know, you might hear a shot from a mile up or, you know, you might see other camps and things like that as you're flying in and out. And I think that's something that just catches some people off guard that they're not aware of. Yeah, definitely. I mean, every, the exception of uh, our Kodiak on every hunt in Alaska I've done, there's much pressure there as, as I run into here in Idaho. Uh, frankly, they're just, you know, they're just people around uh, lots of, lots of guides and outfitters and, and residents. I mean, on our, remember on our caribou hunt, we had some resident, people come and land on the same lake yeah. we were at, you know, like what the crap yeah. middle of Alaska. It's a big, you know, fairly big lake, but they were what, half a mile from us. I mean, it's just like, Holy crap. So yeah, that's definitely something you gotta um, just wrap your mind around. Yeah. It's definitely not the case if you're completely alone, but I mean, when, when uh, with Dwayne there on our sheep hunt, we, I guess we really only walked by uh, saw one camp um, while we were hunting. So that, uh, and then I guess we hiked, in and saw some other hunters and we ended up like we were glassing the same sheep and we just kind of let them be um so we did see two other groups of hunters but it didn't really affect the hunt in any way i don't think there was pressure affected us on that so hmm. steve now that we uh have more time like separated from your hunt because we haven't talked about the experience in a podcast with tyler but in the months since anything that kind of stands out for you or that would be good to kind of chat with Dwayne about you know particularly from your experience there um no i mean man we just had it was such amazing uh just backpacking experience i mean uh, the hunting sheep to me was um it was really cool because it was a lot it pulled from different skill sets that that you know i've developed over the years right of uh the death hike is something that's just like you know you just got to get used to hiking 20 miles in a day um and that's something that we did on that hunt we had some big days um and then just backpacking dealing with adversity um you know i i thought the sheep hunting once you find a ram i was like i felt extremely confident that we found a legal ram it was going to die so that was somewhat surprising to me that they were fairly easy to hunt um once you could find that ram it was just the hard parts finding them but with a rifle like there's a good chance especially if you're patient and it maybe takes a day or two days uh, you're going to get an opportunity at that Ram. So really the the hardest part was just finding them. And the cool thing is they're reminding me of when I had my mountain goat tag in Idaho, they're white animals and uh, they're, they're easy to spot for the, for the most part, if you can get, you know, the right vantage point. So 
um, you just, the trick is just, uh, being ready to put a lot of miles on your boots and cover country until you can find them. And with Tyler's, uh, it happened really quick. I mean, we were in there like 15 miles, I think. And the first two sheep we see, one of them's a legal Ram and, and a few hours later it's dead. Uh, and then flip the coin, you know, we, we hunted really hard for another five, six days and, and couldn't turn up another legal one. So, um, we were really close there a couple of times. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, Dwayne, I remember dropping that, that one bowl. That was, that was fun. Uh, it was me, you and Tyler, and we slid all the way down that thing. And I remember dropping down and going, I don't know if we're going to get back out of this thing. Uh, I don't know if, uh, have you ever packed an animal like up something that steep? Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, Cause it was like, we got out using like toe punch in the snow and using your trekking poles. And it was, you know, that was tough. And if that snow hadn't have been there, I was just like, man, I don't know how, I guess you just had to do some light loads, but I, I didn't see any way of like a, getting an 85 pound pack up that thing without just constantly like sliding back down every step you took up. Yeah, that's, that's exa- it. Exactly. You just got to take light loads and <clears throat> know you're going to be there for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that was a cool, uh, that was a cool stock and just kind of whole hunt. And it was, we were, uh, I remember Dwayne earlier in the hunt, you're like, I, I don't ever want to be in the spot of counting rings. And, and we found ourselves in that exact spot of like, we think this Ram's legal and we're trying to trying to make them, you know, age by counting rings. And it just, you just, you know, no one felt comfortable with it. And, and we ended up obviously just walking away from it, but that was, it's not an easy thing to do, especially with like the, the amount of days and effort you got into the hunt, you know, but ultimately you just don't want to be in that spot of, of shooting a sublegal Ram. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was, I was surprised what, was, I mean, obviously I lose my hunting privileges for a year. Is that right? And then you as well as the guide. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It depends. It depends what they, I mean, they have the, in general, I think that's exactly what would happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you turned yourself in, if they found you and you didn't turn yourself in, then you're going to probably go to jail. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was, I was surprised. I didn't know going into the hunt, like, you know, if you, cause it's, you know, uh, um, it's pretty easy to do. I mean, I mean, uh, um, I guess it'd be easy to get caught up in the moment and go, yeah, that Ram's legal and pull the trigger, but it's, you really got to analyze them and the difference between a legal Ram and uh, a not legal Ram is tough. And I mean, Dwayne, you were telling stories of, of, you know, sheep been killed and, and they take them in and you're confident they're legal and the fish and game people are like, eh, I don't know, this is going to be close. And uh, all of a sudden your heart sinks, you know, um, Can't imagine that, that happened to, yeah, that happened to Tyler. They, he literally brought the sheep in. We were all confident. It was fully legal, really nice Ram. And, and the lady, the first lady at the fish and game office was like, Ooh, you know, okay. and I was like, what? And then unfortunately some other guy like, Oh no, he's yeah, that's a legal ram. The guy could just tell before he pulled, you know, did the measurements and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I was surprised how stiff the penalty is. I mean, it's really, uh, it's a big deal. You know, you don't want to, no one wants to lose their license for a full year. So no. And you don't want to get yeah. tagged with that. It's just, yeah, it's better to do what we did. Walk away, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you want to yeah. walk up on something that you're like, "Whoa, this is this is what I want to take home." You know, there, there's no question. That's when you're, um, yeah, that's when it's it's nice. But it, I mean, you do have to do the counting of the rings, and um, even on some of the ones that I'm 
positive they're full curl you know i'm sitting there trying to count the rings too just to you know get a couple in the bag instead of just one you know because you need to have the other full curl eight years old or uh um double broomed you know broken on both sides that that was another thing that i remember um uh gosh i just lost my train of thought there um, that's another thing you remember that you forgot yeah. <laughs> yeah as he was saying it i was like i was like there was something that surprised me and then i just lost it it'll come back to me we'll keep talking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on average Dwayne, of the sheep that you end up taking with a client uh would you say like it's you know roughly half of those where you're just instantly like no question no doubt you don't really have to study it you see it you get a decent look at it through a spotter or something you just know uh like i guess what i'm asking is how many that you end up confirming that you're comfortable taking, do you really, really have to give a good look to? Um, yeah, probably about half. Uh, you know, because when they get to eight years, sometimes eight, nine years old, they'll, they won't ever be full curl. And uh, we shot an 11-year-old one of my first years that was a seven-eighths ram. And it took uh, a long time uh, one of my friends was a guide and he'd been doing it a long time. And it took, it took a while for him to be able to look at that thing. And, um, and the only reason I guess they had taken it was it had been hanging around camp for all week and we hadn't been turning up any legal Rams. And the guy, the client finally was like, I want to go take a look at that. And so they went and laid down and um, he wasn't going to shoot it, but it started raining and it darkened the rings and he could see them really well. Oh, interesting. 75 yards. And then he's like, wow, that's, that's an old Ram. And, uh, turned out to be 11 years old, but it, it was never going to be a full curl, curl Ram. And he wasn't super thick or, or, um, long either. Just, you know, the genetics. Yeah. Do Rams begin to regress like an older age, you know, like a, a buck or a bull can peak and then, you know, lives older and doesn't grow as large in following years. But I mean, a ram's not, you know, it's a horn, it's not an antler. But is there any sort of like, you know, because clearly they're not growing each year, but like any sort of regression or like almost shrinkage, you know, in horn? Breaking them off. <laughs> Just breaking, but not an act, any sort of actual like, yeah, I guess, you know, shrinking would be the only term I could think of, like regression in size. Not that I know of, no. Yeah, I've never thought about that. That's interesting. Yeah, what what I was going to mention earlier that I forgot about was uh, remember we were that legal ram on that one bowl that you and Tyler and I dropped down to. You were you're like if we're here a month later, he's legal, uh, and that was surprising to me that how much you said that they can grow over the you know at seven eight years old how much they can grow in a month. Um, that was uh, yeah surprising. I kind of thought it'd be you know like half an inch a year or something like that, but just over that next month. Um, that you thought that there's a chance he might be legal. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that for sure, but um, you know, in the summertime is when they really put that growth on um, horn because of all the stuff they're eating, you know, from, you know, as soon as the fresh greens start showing up in the spring um, and, you know, up high, it's a shorter season. Alaska is a short season to begin with. Once they get up high um, it's a shorter season as well. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and then Mark, going back to the, I think the one thing I, it's like, I knew better. Um, but I still like, yeah, I didn't want to pack a big scope spine scope, but you can't have enough glass with you on a sheep hunt. Um, 
I, I think the, the biggest, nicest blind scope you can pack is worth the wait. Um, just it's tough to balance when you're, you know, you're going to be backpacking and every ounce matters. But um, when, as we're talking about counting rings and really judging these sheep um, and the penalty for shooting a sub sub legal Ram uh, optics is, is really everything. I mean, I think it's just really, really important. I, I packed up my little Koa 55 cause it's great clear glass and perfectly adequate for like looking at a mule deer buck at a mile and going, yeah, he's a shooter or not. But with the sheep, it's uh, you, you want every bit of quality glass you can take with you. Yeah. I mean, it's truly a game of inches and especially as a guide and outfitter, like that is your business is be able to see and make those judgment calls. So it's gotta be critical for you doing. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's right on. I'd rather have a good spotter in a, you know, if you're um, looking to save money, have a good spotter in just the average pair of binoculars, because um, for me, when I'm deciding on what direction I want to go, I want to have a decent look at what I'm chasing before I head, because you can, like Steve saying, you can cover a lot of uh, miles and uh, not see something, you know? So, yeah, there was plenty of Rams. We were glassing from, you know, two miles away plus. And it's like, you, I mean, you're literally from two miles trying to look through all the heat waves and the haze and like, okay, is one of those Rams in that group of five, like enticing enough for us to, to drop down 3000 feet and climb up 3000 feet and go get a closer look at. And it's that glass that just truly save you for that reason, save you some walking miles. And also once you do get within, you know, 200 yards or 500 yards uh, to pull that out. Cause I, I don't even really imagine a scenario where you're going to pull the trigger. Uh, I, I guess I, I didn't see a Ram obviously on that hunt, Dwayne, that was, that was so massive. You just knew, but like, I can't imagine a scenario where you're not pulling out that spine scope, even at, at 250 yards to, to verify that it's legal. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. I mean, there's usually other Rams around and just making sure guys are on the, the right Ram you know right um you never know guys can get mixed up real quick and or they get you know you think there's only one or two rams around and you get in close and you're not paying attention the heat of the moment guys can pull the trigger on the wrong ram i've i've heard the stories it hasn't happened to me knock on wood but um i don't want it to happen to me you know and so mm -hmm. what do you personally use for a spotter doing I have the Swarovski, uh, the 20 by 60. I probably should upgrade, but that thing's been good to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's probably that, that scope. I mean, I've been able to use and review a lot of scopes for the like balancing weight and performance. I think it's probably one of the best options out there for sure. Yeah. It's not the biggest one, but yeah, it works. And I use it for uh, bear and I've used it for everything. Um, yeah. Yeah, we, we chatted earlier and you mentioned Dwayne Alaska range kind of has everything to offer. Um, I could stand here all day and ask you sheep questions, but just to kind of recap for guys who are interested in, you know, what's available through you and just in general, can you kind of recap um, from a high level, number one, how folks can kind of check out where you guys are operating, what you have to offer, and then number two, just kind of what those opportunities are, because whether it's sheep or bear or caribou, which I know you do... Um, some caribou outside the Alaska range as well. Uh, and then are you looking, I think, uh, I heard you're looking to add moose to the lineup as well. Um, yeah, we're looking at adding moose in the future. 
Um, right now, I offer uh, sheep and caribou in the Alaska range, which you can, I mean, you can hunt black bear and there's wolf in there as well. Um, I mean, if you want to, I can put a black bear package together, but typically guys are just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bonus incidental. Yeah. Um, and then I offer, uh, Alaska Peninsula caribou, um, down at a cold bay. I do caribou down there in September and then, um, also brown bear down there. And that's, uh, the, the Alaska Peninsula is even springs. So 20, that being said, they're having a spring season this year for guys that booked last year because of COVID. Um, anybody that booked last year can go and didn't get to hunt can go this spring. Um, but it's typically even spring, which is usually May 10th to the 25th and then odd fall. Uh, so this, there'll be a fall season down there this year. Um, and that's October 7th through the 21st. Yeah. Um, you spent a lot of time bear hunting. One thing that um, do you think people coming up from the lower 48 have an irrational fear of, of grizzly and brown bears? Or is it, is it a justified fear? You know, like, I mean, the first time we were like going up to the caribou hunt, we knew there were grizzlies there. We asked a million questions and then you kind of get out there and go, eh, it's like, it's not near as big a deal as I thought. Uh, yes and no. I mean, people, you got to respect the animal. <laughs> I guess yeah. that's all I can yeah. say, you know, they are an animal <laughs> and it differs from one to the next. Um, it can differ with the season sometimes, whether they're aggressive or not, uh, you know, but they are a wild animal. So they're unpredictable in a lot of ways, you know, uh, run into a starving one, you know, their, their worst fears probably could come true, but if you know for the most part they want to stay away from you as much as you want to stay away from them yeah i think that's what to me that's my you know it reminds me sometimes of of guys that hunt back east and come out to the west you know they're like wondering what pistol they need to pack for black bear protection and to me as living out here my whole life it's like i don't even pack a pistol i don't even ever ever think about it uh it's not like on my radar at all and i think i, I see a little bit of that when you know the, the residents up there absolutely are um, aware and respect the bears, but it's not, um, it's a, it's a respect. It's not like a, Oh my gosh, I'm going to get eaten every time I, I go out and hunt. Um, I guess I just coming from a personal perspective, that's, you know, we thought like, Oh, we're going to be walking on eggshells the whole time while we're hunting caribou or the first trip to Kodiak, Mark and I, you know, we're, we're asking lots of Brown bear questions and, um, like just, you know, you, I think it's, they're there. You need to respect them. You need to pay attention to things, but it's not, uh, there's not one, a bear hiding around every tree just waiting to eat you. No. And, and that's it, it. Exactly. There's definitely areas that, um, the bears are more aggressive and you got to be aware of that. And, you know, a lot of that, like a fog neck out of Kodiak, um, those things they know, and it's not so much that they're aggressive to the people, but I think they completely associate people with food because when people show up out on a fog neck, typically they're going fishing or hunting and all them around, they're going to get a free meal. So they, and they, you know, out there it's all draw. So you can't just buy a tag and shoot one. Um, they don't have the fear of the people as much and you always hear people saying you know in kodiak when someone shoots a gun it's like a dinner bell it, it really can be because they know if people if they hear that there's someone there and they're probably shooting at 
something they can eat. Yeah. It was not comforting to me that the first deer we shot on Kodiak on the first day of hunting, we decided to leave and come back to. I'm like, I don't know if this is a good idea. Let's just carry this sucker around. And then I'm like, no, I don't want to carry it around either. Yeah, yeah we were, I mean, we were like, we had talked with the, the with Rafe. Um, and then he, you know, it's like just basically we cut the deer up, moved all the quarters about 100 yards away from the deer and hung it up in a tree and it was right on the edge of a meadow i mean we were it was yeah we, it worked well we were smart about it but it's yeah. still like it was it was against um advice of kill it pack it out and then and then hunt the next day you know don't don't come back to a kill site a few hours later yeah it worked i mean just little things like making sure which we did was putting visibility on it so you're not like wondering where it is or stumbling into it or looking for it but like knowing exactly like okay here's the site like we can glass it before we approach it we can make sure nothing's disturbed nothing's present yeah we didn't uh we took some precaution for sure but still my for being the first one i was like i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah well cool this is uh it's been good Dwayne. um yeah, man, we'll have to chat in the future and all that. But uh, to recap, like just point folks to uh, how they can get in contact with you or check out your website or whatever is best, you know, if they have questions for you or want to look at hunts. Yeah, uh, so I got a website. It's uh, huntmao.com and you can get on. We have Instagram and Facebook um, as well. You can get to the links on there. Um, doing, I got a sheep hunts in August, caribou hunts in September and some Alaska Peninsula brown bear hunts in uh, October. So uh, if you have questions, my all my info's on there. You can get a hold of me and talk to me personally, and uh, or call Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, happy to give a, a good reference for sure. I know if anyone's interested in a massive caribou that you're a caribou hunt you have lined out. There's a, like truly Big some monster bulls. bulls on that thing. I Tyler showed me some pictures cause they, he and his wife, Callie got to do the hunt after our sheep hunt and there's seeing and killing some massive bulls out there, which is really cool. So yeah, that's a, the cool down on that Alaska peninsula is just, it's so cool down there. The it's different from what you expect hunting caribou. You know, a lot of guys expect to go up, like north in the arctic but um it's a coastal hunt there's cool stuff on the beach you know um it's really incredible down there well there you have it guys i hope you enjoyed that one don't forget there are links in the show description if you want to get in contact with Dwayne, check out his website or have questions for him about future adventures in alaska we do appreciate the time that you guys spend with us, not only listening to the show, but sharing your feedback with us. You can always contact us by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We'll talk to you soon.